This is brought to you by Tech GC. Tech GC. Tech GC is the best. Tech GC is number one. All right, here we are. We're here. Did you notice I said jet again? Dude, I'm fucking sick and tired. <laughs> I'm sick and tired got of a jet. terrible slang. Andy's new thing is he's using like lame slang from the late 80s and early 90s and, and I'm, I'm really that frustrated. That episode was tubular. Tubular episode. Oh my god, dude. Gonna, <laughs> it was I'm, so I'm gonna, good. I resign. Can I resign? Can it I resign? Was, on, it, can, it I, was, can I resign this episode? I'm going to resign. Too legit, it was too legit to quit. You know what I've been doing? This is going to sound crazy, man. I have been Go deep diving it. on Joe Rogan's podcast and I'm not a huge Joe Rogan fan nor do I like his politics. Um, so like that's not why. I've just been curious as to why it's so popular. Mm-hmm. And I think I've figured it out. All right. He's the best podcast interviewer I've seen because he almost barely speaks on his podcast. It's unbelievable. He just has this way about him that like in the old, there has to be like a school done about like how to get information out of people that either he's attended or he should start because he's really great at like zeroing in on a guest and their interests and just getting stuff out of them to make them entertaining. And the guests are really the stars of the show. Why am I talking about all this? Because our guests are the stars. I think of they our feel show. relaxed. I think they I think relax. They feel relaxed, they right? Yeah. I agree. I agree. There's like yeah, a validating. And I think, you know, course. on a, on a, <laughs> on a much smaller level, that's what we try to do. Yeah, no, we suck. To bring, <laughs> to bring, uh, to bring legal and privacy though into a more relaxed forum, right? Because yeah. like it's a serious topic a lot of times and it just doesn't, it just doesn't have to be. And that's not the reality of practicing law, yeah. even in a, what's viewed as an uptight, stuffy law firm, you know, those people are people too, right? Yeah. So it's, it's their, it's trying to bring it down a click. And I think he does that. I mean, I don't agree with anything that he really talks about on his own. But yeah, I mean, he's probably a good interviewer, I'm sure. He's a really good interviewer, man. And like, I'm I'm literally watching him for some pro tips about how to have conversations that really bring out the light in people, because um, he's really good at that. And like, I know that that's a big part of our little podcast experiment here, which is getting away from sort of the mundane, like drudgery of privacy compliance speak and just t- like revealing the human behind the the name is something I think our podcast is really sort of organically evolved into. Try, I'm really proud of you. I'm yeah, really proud of to. that because like, I think that's like a cool thing to do, man. Speaking of names in privacy, who's our guest today? Yeah. Omer Tene. Oh my God. Titan. You know, we got, <laughs> we got, we got a, he's a giant man. He's, he's a giant. And when I was getting started 165,000 years ago, he was already like a big deal. Um, and yep. so he's one of those people, man. I told him when they, during the episode, but like, he's one of those, those people I watched closely and was like, his, his power comes from his plain spoken, no nonsense sort of analysis of the issues. And he's not willing, I mean, excuse me, he's not afraid to like take a position on things. Like how refreshing is that? Everyone's so afraid to take positions in our profession, man. It's like, oh my God, I don't want to upset the regulators. Like, are they really that petty? Like, is that like, are the regulators really like, oh, Pedro said a thing on a podcast. Let's cut, let's never listen to him again. Like we have to have a free exchange of ideas. And I think he is a like yeah. prodigious, like, I don't want to use the word enforcer, but like promulgator of ideas. 
and sort of challenging reflexive thinking. And I am really impressed by how he's been able to do that over a long period of time and not kind of become the old guard, which is what can happen. I love the I love lawyers and privacy people in general just have a point of view. He definitely has a point of view. And I was on a call with him. This isn't just publicly like I was on a call with him with my team like eight weeks ago talking about TIAs, for example. And he he made a point, you know, like, well, I forget what exactly we're talking about. He just said, why not do it? Why not just do it? And I forget exactly what we were talking about, but it struck me because it was like, yeah, there's a lot of legal analysis going on here, but why not do it? Think about it. And, and you don't always get that from outside counsel, you know, you, you sometimes 100%. get like, right, a different kind of answer. Um, and, and so I think, uh, you know, that's a long way of saying you sort of, you know, smooth, smoother, smoother transition into giving the practical advice that he's giving to founders and CTOs and GCs of smaller growth tech companies. Yeah. He's a man. I'm excited. Yeah. The conversation was great. I'm excited to share it with everybody. Okay. Here it is. We're here. We did it. <laughs> okay. Bye. All yeah, right. Exactly. See you. We're done. <laughs> see you next we, time. Right before we hit record, we were talking about how bad this podcast is. <laughs> what a way to start off. You well, know, podcasts are like a long tail situation, right? A lot of them are bad. They're like two new uh, good podcasts. Planet Money and maybe the other ones. So... Planet Money is that one of your favorites? There's some like yelling it. on yeah. that one for me. It's good. That one's too it's, aggressive. I like Planet me. Money. Andy, what's your favorite podcast? Mm, I think, like a lot of people, I was intrigued by Serial. You know, we have three uh-huh. lawyers here, um, and I was that was back when you commuted, so I was commuting, you know, driving and listening to Serial a lot, and what a compelling story, and and it. It takes place in Baltimore, where I grew up, so that was mm. important. Interesting. What about what about you, Pedro? Uh, I don't have a favorite series because I get bored really fast. But I've seen some really good ones. There was one called I think it was called Black Cowboys. It's one of the best like podcast miniseries I've ever heard. It's about the history of like black cowboys, which has been erased. It was really good. Then there was one about a bank robber that I loved. I don't remember what it was called, but he was like I think it was Mexican American bank robber dude who robbed all these banks in California, and it was amazing. And, um, and, oh, there's one, hold on, I'll tell you, it was called El Transportista, the transporter, and it's both in English and Spanish, so you can listen to the episodes in either language, and I listened to it in both, and it's about this guy who was, like, a narco uh, trafficker, and he basically flew planes from Mexico, and I think Colombia, into the United States full of drugs, and he's secretly recording this podcast through phone calls from prison with Whoa. the podcast host it's fucking awesome anyway that's my favorite podcast i guess that el, el transportista would become a president of the united states oh, <laughs> oh. okay that's actually a kind way to describe trump uh <laughs> Oh, El yeah. Tramportista sounds like a nickname for him. Yeah. El Tramportista. Uh, I'm sure he'd appreciate it being well, in Spanish with his affinity for Mexicans oh, yeah. and people of Spanish origin. Anyway. All right. Let's talk about Homer's life. All right. Let's go in. Let's get in here because this, this is interesting too. But, uh, Omer, I want to go back a little bit. Path, your path to privacy because. Path to like, privacy. 
for 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 three of for the three of us when we came out of law school it was this wasn't a thing so i'm always interested in you know in folks story because i didn't think i was going to do this now people come out and they think maybe i'll go do privacy that wasn't even a, an option for us yeah no it's it is a good question for people from our generation um, because you know when i got into law um, there was no privacy um and um i mean no privacy as a legal discipline i actually went into law because of uh, uh, watching L.A. Law, we were talking about uh, a podcast series, but this is, you remember, this is like the 80s. I can't even imagine what they were wearing. It's probably gross now. Uh, but Jimmy <laughs> Smith and Susan Day, and like that's what got me into law. Uh, I ended up like in an area which is probably the diametric opposite of that glamour. Um so wait, you mean you don't feel I privacy into... glamour? You, you don't feel privacy glamour every day? <laughs> no, <laughs> none at all. Um, how I got into privacy was um, I, I, so I was a lawyer. I was a corporate lawyer for about a decade, and I worked in New York for a while, and then Israel, and then actually Paris. And I was working at Fried Frank in Paris as a corporate lawyer. And I thought, like, I want to change. I need, like, I need to do something else. And I I wanted to do something technology-related because Israel was, like, this budding high-tech hub. And, you know, I was not tied to it in any way. Corporate law is, like, so old. Um, so I answered a job advertisement in The Economist. You know, The Economist has like those two pages at the beginning with like Chief Economist World Bank. It's always very grandiose. And this one was for a think tank uh, uh, dealing with data protection. It was called the Data Protection Research and Policy Group based in London. Um, so I applied and I got the job and that was 2003 or 2004 and that's how I got in and actually started my network because a lot of people you guys know from privacy, at least in Europe, were participants in that group. People like uh, Chris Kuhner and Boyana Bellamy and Ruth Boardman. Uh, Sheila Gaskell, who passed, uh, but but she was phenomenal, and Heather Rowe retired from Lovells at the time, before the Hogan merger. So a lot of kind of privacy folks. Pat Walsh was even in it. Did you say you you got your first privacy job through a magazine? Is that what I just understood? It's a magazine. Exactly, yeah. but the, but super highbrow, Pedro. It, yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. The Economist, like it doesn't get better. White than Shoe that. Magazine. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I got the uh, I got the Alice job through highlights. <laughs> anyway, anyway, well, so uh, going in there and like working with all of those people, um, what did you learn from them at the time and how did that like impact the the trajectory and the growth there? 
Well, I learned standard contractual clauses, and that's what <laughs> basically got me to here. You know, I'm, I'm still doing those, still saying it's actually a processor, which always helps. Um, no, but seriously, you know, I, I learned everything I know from those people, and it's like really, you know, giants, like. Uh, sort of learning the base of your privacy education for people like uh, Chris Kuhner and Ruth Boardman. It, it doesn't get better than that. So, um, you know, I learned the issues. And as you know, <laughs> it, it, it's still to our joy or chagrin. It's still very much the issues we deal with today. They are, but they are rapidly changing and evolving, which is so interesting and makes it makes it the the practice that it is, I think, for all of us. So how did you like how how much change happened, I guess, you know, while you were there? And then was that upending or was that interesting? Well, you know, on the one hand, there has been mind-blowing change. And this is um, both on the policy side of things and also, and even more so, uh, from a technological standpoint. Like when, you know, when I graduated from law school, the internet barely existed. I think it kind of caught on in 97, 98, and I graduated in 95. So uh, that's, you know, something that's changed. Um, but, um, I, I mean, you know, um, technologically, it's it's just been a whirlwind, and it's the pace is dizzying. Uh, Facebook didn't exist, you know, Amazon was very nascent, they sold, like, books, and, you know, Netflix uh, sent, like, uh, uh, CDs. Uh, uh, CDs, DVRs, um, and, and also from a policy point of view, because um, that was way before GDPR, you know, the, the, I'm talking like 15 years before GDPR and certainly the U.S. state laws and the FTC was just kind of starting its uh, uh, privacy and data security program. So, uh, it, you know, on the one hand, a lot has changed. On the other hand, um, we're still dealing with you know, data transfers and cookies and employees' privacy. I, I remember those were actually kind of our topics in 2003. So, um, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask about transfers, and that and that's like when I think back to when I joined DataZoo and the EU directive was in play, and the EU directive was written like before email, and then the concept of transfer. <laughs> <laughs> that changed, you know, as we got into the GDPR. And now we're we're sort of in 22, arguably in a more sophisticated place with respect to transfers. And yet the idea that it's a transfer when a global company, when someone logs in to a system, that that's processing and that's a transfer still feels at odds to me with practical reality. And the preaching to the choir, I've, you know, I've spoken on, written about, sort of criticized 
the European data transfer and adequacy framework for for decades now, really. Um, I thought it didn't make sense back then, and it most certainly doesn't make sense now. Uh, it's a vestige of, you know, just another time and era uh, from a technological point of view when data was kind of moved on mainframe computers and, like, uh, external drives. I mean, it's, it's even before external drives, really, because those are easy to to carry, not to mention, you know, the sort of light speed uh, global data transfers that we have today and that occur. I mean, even now we're speaking, you know, you and I are in Boston, Pedro, I'm not sure where you are, but like the, the data from this call might be channeled through like uh, Kazakhstan. It, it probably is channeled through Kazakhstan. So um, just you know, because of us. Um, so, 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 yeah, I think, you know, this uh, framework leaves much to be desired. I also Why think it's, somebody, it's really yeah, burdensome oh, for, like, the low level of achievement that it delivers. Like, it's expensive as hell to deal with. Um, and I've, I've raged about this, which is, like, how much safer are people as a result of it i i just i can't i'm sure there's some measurable but who's measuring that and like de demonstrating the value i think it's more about control than it is about protection and that's not i know that's an unpopular opinion amongst european circles but that's sort of my take it's unbelievable pedro like from a, a cost benefit analysis ridiculous to think of how much paper, you know, goes into this and legal fees and whatnot uh, compared to the benefit. And, you know, when I was looking at the president's executive order now, which will be the basis for the new the new privacy shield, the DPF, Data Privacy Framework, I think it's called now, um, I actually commented that at the very end of the day, the sort of net-net of all this will be a decision by this tribunal that is being set up, which will say either um, we will amend certain practices or we want and we can't confirm or deny that you've been surveilled. This this is it, you know, this is what it comes down to. Now, I'm not sort of minimizing the importance of surveillance oversight, you know. We of course. Are, yeah, we support democracy and checks and balances and obviously, right? But is that ruling worth, you know, just the turmoil and the... Uh, transaction costs that this has inflicted on the entire ecosystem, I'm not sure. Yeah, I agree with you. And also, if this was actually about surveillance, then it would apply to Europeans. <laughs> I mean, like, what? Correct. It's like, you know, I mean, it, 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 to me, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, so I don't think it's actually about U.S. surveillance. I mean, about surveillance. It's about U.S. non-European controlled surveillance, which is sort of like a trust us, don't trust anybody else. We're going to pass a law. To make this really hard and burdensome. But to your point, like if you read the EO, there, there's progress there. And again, I want to be super clear here. I'm speaking on my own behalf. This is not Meta's opinion. This is not my company. Um, uh, it is an achievement 
that we are working more closely together across the Atlantic. I think that's what's happening. And that's a good thing. Um, But when I sit down in my independent mind and ask myself, is, are we protecting people most effectively and most efficiently by this process? I cannot be dishonest with myself. We're, this isn't the best way to do this. It's sort of like where I land every time. Um, it's expensive. Yeah, it's I grueling. Agree. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, it 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 doesn't actually. Me as an individual, I don't feel empowered. And so now, what have we achieved? I, I I agree, Pedro. And I have to say, you know, I don't think that this is kind of intended necessarily as a protectionist measure and to sort of uh, single out the United States. Um, it's just, you know, it's a result of the artifact, which is European uh, data protection law and more generally European law, that the commission has uh, jurisdiction and authority over the external data transfers, but not over the domestic, um, yeah. you know, national security measures. And that's the way the system was created, and that led to this focus of, of the Commission and the European courts and the European DPAs on the practices of uh, American, you know, intelligence agencies, uh, and sort of not comparing to or looking at the domestic ones. So I, I, I just want to say that also because it's not, I think you know, necessarily intended or bad sort of faith. It's just the way the system works. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I will add that the system doesn't have to work that way. And when the Europeans don't like the way something's working, they change it. Like, they, I, I think there was some displeasure among some circles about how GDPR is being enforced. And hence comes the, the DMA and the DSA to address gaps and, and, and fill holes and do all the things that they wanted to do. So like if this, if the uh, cross-border data transfer issue was about surveillance. They could they could apply it to themselves if they wanted to. Not given the existing laws, they could just make new ones. And this is what the Europeans are really it's good very, at: ex- passing laws. It's very <laughs> yeah, but this is member state law. It's not European law. And, yeah. and as you know, it's very hard to negotiate and sort of move the needle yeah. on national security practices. You, you know, I come from Israel, which obviously has um, uh, profound national security concerns. And I, I used to sit on this uh, statutory oversight committee, which was called the um, Privacy Protection Council. It's kind of a statutory body under the law. And it's multi-stakeholder. So you had like representatives of um, uh, civil society, the equivalent of the Israeli ACLU, which is called ACRI in Israel. Um, and I, I was there as an academic. And, you know, for any sort of legislative measure, regulatory measure that came up for discussion, the, the civil society folks would say, wait, but what about the Shabak, the uh, Israeli National Security Agency? And, you know, my view was, guys, let's get our wins where we can and sort of leave the hard issues for last, because otherwise we're not going to do anything, you know, the... 
it's very difficult to sort of negotiate legal changes with uh, Shabak in Israel and with any national security agency in, in the world. I think that's, I, 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 I recognize and hear your point. I think, unfortunately, in my opinion, um, it that is true only when it's about reducing power. When it's about increasing power, po- political processes and politicians will seize a moment of fear and expand surveillance act, uh, prowess almost instantaneously. Like if you think about in the U.S., the USA Patriot Act and how quickly that law was passed um, after September 11th. Uh, it, it, it's, it's unfortunate to me that it's a, it seems to be a one-way street from just as a pure privacy thinker. Um, when it's about giving surveillance agencies more power, it's quick. When it's about reducing your own surveillance power, it's an impossible ask. And I just don't under, well, I don't understand why that is unless it is about power. Yeah, I agree. And I think there are other institutions that are kind of better at mitigating that. In Israel, it's the High Court of Justice, our Supreme Court, which has actually struck down um, even legislation or parts of legislation. Uh, in that space, we had like a data retention type law, Communications Data Act, which the Supreme Court uh, narrowed. We had the biometric, national biometric database. So the Supreme Court has kind of weighed in to leave that to the political process. I, I agree, it's precarious because um, those government agencies have far more clout and kind of are able to use, you know, fear mongering or what not uh, much more effectively than privacy lawyers. How, how do you think U.S. lawyers are viewed globally? Like in the context of uh, the history of, of, you know, working in different countries and now um, spending, living here. Uh, and the, and it, I guess I'm asking sort of also in the context of the view of privacy as a fundamental right, particularly in Europe versus in the United States? I, I, I think there is a different answer if you are, if you're talking about U.S. lawyers kind of writ large or U.S. privacy lawyers. Um, I mean, maybe, you know, it's, an, it's a nuance, a subcategory, but it's different because uh, when I worked in Paris, I was, you know, kind of a U.S. lawyer. I'm Israeli, of course, and accented, but I was a member of the New York State Bar and sort of worked in New York law firm. And we had, you know, a, a fair number of French lawyers who worked at our firm. And typically when you asked the French lawyers a question, at the time we were doing deals and financings, and the answer inevitably was, no, c'est pas possible. You can't do it. And our sort of mission as the U.S. attorneys was to get to yes. And you know how it is. Like, the, there is no, no. I mean, there is, but on very sort of yeah. um, extreme kind of specific situations. And you need to make things work. That's what 
the role is of outside counsel, you know, while maintaining, of course, your integrity and ethics and the law and all that. But having said that, you you need to make things work. So, um, so I think as U.S. lawyers at the time, you know, working at least in Paris, it was a matter of negotiating internally many times within our law firm to try to get to yes. I think on privacy, you know, there's different kind of context and color here um, because, you know, for the longest time there was this myth that there's no privacy law in the United States. And, of course, I think it's misstated and in fact, might be the inverse. There, there, for, for a long time, there was privacy law only in the United States. And, you know, the privacy kind of field, the industry, started in the U.S. in the late 1990s. Not so much as uh, a response to law or regulation, but more as a response to market conditions. Like the first companies to kind of seize privacy and appoint chief privacy officers were big data companies. Like uh, they weren't called that back then because big data only kind of became a buzzword in the 2000s. But, um, you know, it's DoubleClick, uh, Jules Polonetsky, IBM, Harriet Pearson, Axiom with Jennifer Glasgow Barrett, um, AOL, Jules again. So, so those were the first companies, it wasn't mandated by law, it was mandated by a business reality where they, you know, understood that data is incredibly strategic, valuable, but also has risks. When I, when I advise, when people ask me now, young people, which CIPP should I get? That answer has changed, I think, in the, in, or what experience, what privacy experience should I get? Because I used to say, get into a GDPR program. Anywhere someone's developing a program, get in, do whatever you can, help do the records of processing, help whatever you can do, just get on the ground floor of that program. And now when they ask, I say, go get the US. It's where the action is. And the action is here right now, which is a very different turn for us than it has been, I think, recently. And um, I think a lot of that is due to the IAPP in some ways um, and the way they've like, really leaned in and popularized the certifications, the knowledge base. Do you, do you think that is that, did you see that with the IAPP? I, I, sorry, I, my dogs are barking, so it's a little <laughs> distracting. Um, I, I think the action has always been here and the, um, I, I, and I do take your point about the GDPR and the CIPP EU. Um, for a period of time, it was like the big, you know, shiny new thing, and everyone had to um, learn it and understand and figure it out. I think, you know, even when GDPR was the big regulatory framework that Watton had to ingest, a lot of the work was actually done 
in the U.S. Not all of it, of course. There are, you know, great privacy professionals on both sides of the pond, but um, that's something to keep in mind. And then, of course, Andy, as you're pointing out, I, I think over the last few years, there's been like uh, just storm of activity uh, here in the United States with state legislation and BIPA litigation and CFAA kind of going to uh, all the way to the Supreme Court. So there's been a lot to learn here. And the system here in the U.S. is incredibly complex. You know, in a way, it's um, it's easier to be a privacy lawyer in Europe because you have a harmonized framework by and large. Whereas in the U.S., you have you know twelve sectoral federal privacy laws, and then the states are coming in and sort of enforcement up and down from from individual actions, class actions, attorneys general, the, the FTC. Uh, so there is a lot going on. I'm flattered to hear that you think the IPP had, you know, something to do with it. Um, of course, you know, the IPP is international. That's the I. So it has, uh, you know, gained a lot of traction on, on both sides of that planet. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, you know, it started in the U.S. and it's still by far the biggest uh, jurisdiction. So I think a lot of the IPP activity has been generated it's, here. It's really special community. We, we were in Austin last week, Pedro and I both were. And what, like, what do you think makes it special? I think I, both, twofold, both the privacy community that the IPP has really helped to establish and the organization itself. Both things are very special. And, and, you know, you worked there for, for many years at, at, uh, as chief knowledge officer. So what makes it special sort of inside and out? Uh, first of all, thank you, Andy. And, uh, I too, you know, think and believe and feel that it's special and that was actually the reason I joined the IPP in the first place, because, you know, I was a member of the community even prior to joining. And I kind of saw and knew what it was about, just, you know, as you are, as, as a privacy professional. Um, I, 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 so I think you said it like it's it's a community that that's that's the answer. Um, and it's a phenomenal community. It's, you know, what could be better than a community of international professionals who are sort of there to learn, you know, the newest developments and like the most exciting issues, law, policy, technology, diplomacy, uh, all these things. A lot of young people kind of rising through uh, the ranks. Um, as a profession, privacy is completely gender balanced, which is, you know, phenomenal and and special. I think in tech related professions, it's um, it's fifty fifty or even leaning uh, female. Um, so so that I think has um, an effect. And the IPP, you know, as an organization, has um, 
like a huge stake at the central stake in actually creating that community serving as its uh, focal point and center. And, um, you know, the conferences have always been outstanding. That's how I got in. Mindy Moore is like the secret sauce there. She's the director of events for for a long time, almost from the beginning of the IPP. And she's just, you know, a genius at delivering this. Uh, I, I'd like to think the content is also great. You know, I was in charge of that for for many years. Um so, so yeah, it's it's a it's a great community and a great organization, sort of mobilizing it. I also think like privacy attracts certain people that that have uh, consumer protection or consumer empathy at their heart, and I think that contributes to the community as well. IPP obviously does a lot as well, but for some reason, I just I <laughs> I find the community incredibly empathetic and thoughtful and open and sharing and people want to bat stuff around. And I think also, also obviously like we've touched on before, there was a lot to bat around because it's changing all the time. But Well, you and I a, and yeah. Pedro are <laughs> of course an exception to that uh, uh, rule. But other than that, yeah, it's a community of <laughs> <laughs> great, great people who are nice and you know <laughs> empathetic. Speaking of uh, speak, speaking of people that are uh, ruthless, why why did you go to a law firm? <laughs> <laughs> I oh, waited for that. Uh, for that, <laughs> like, the, the the best possible segue. I um, say this with amazing love for Goodwin. You know, there are my outside counsel. Uh, on the corporate side for the last two companies, I love Goodwin, but you know, they are Thank a lot you. of fun. <laughs> um, well, y- you know, I'm a lawyer, <laughs> like, I, <laughs> maybe, maybe I would have gone to Mass General to be a, a brain surgeon if I, if I, if I could do it, uh, but um, I, I, I was a lawyer, you know, before. I joined the IPP. I was even a law professor for a few years in Israel. Um, and when I decided it's time to move on, um, I could go in-house or go outside counsel, basically, you know. And um, for me personally, I feel, you know, outside counsel is a bit less um, branded in a way. You know, it's, it's, it's about you. Like, people come for your sort of knowledge, expertise, and um, it's it's less corporate. So um, I felt, you know, it was a better fit, at least uh, um, when I was sort of uh, considering it um, a year ago, a little more. Um, yeah, so... I will say it's good. It's good to have people like you in law firms, though, um, because you bring a, you bring a very unique set of experiences and a very practical mindset that I think sometimes can be hard to find amongst outside counsel, especially the ones who've never been in-house or worked in civil society or been an academic, right? Like that combination of skills serves me pretty well. Um, uh, and I, I imagine, I imagine it's, it's going to serve you really well at the firm. Yeah. Thank you, Pedro. Um, I, I was about to summarize my last statement and say that what brought me into a law firm is basically the dearth of options that uh, I had. 
but you know, I will say that I found that a lot of people in a firm have um, sort of different and interesting backgrounds. Of course, a lot of people come from government, and that's a great, um, you know, experience. Uh, you, you have people coming from in-house. Typically, you see, you know, sort of the pilgrimage the other way. They do a few years in law firm and then join in-house, but you do have people going back to a firm in, yeah, so it's it's more, I think, diverse from a disciplinary point of view than one may think. Also good when, like a few other firms that do venture tech work or do private equity work, have a very, very strong platform for creating the conditions for needing really strong privacy people. And I think from the outside looking in, when you join Goodwin, you know, my immediate thought is, okay, there's credibility that that, that firm didn't have before. And that's from the experiences you've had. That's from, you know, basically winning every Twitter race to get out critical information. You know, when something drops, that's not, that's not something that firm had before. So it's not all about like, how much law someone's done or, or whatever they've done. It's their whole career. It's, it's the, it's the rounded nature of what they bring um, to the, to the firm and vice versa. The firm brings, you know, a platform for privacy. Uh, I, I think. appreciate that. And, and as you know, like my partners um, in privacy in the firm are also great. Uh, each person kind of brings their own professional flavor and, uh, background, but uh, I, I, I do agree with respect to the Goodwin platform, you know, and that's one of the central reasons that I decided to join this firm and not others, um, that, you know, the type of clients, the type of work that Goodwin has is incredibly, you know, conducive to privacy being a central issue. And uh, we, you know, Goodwin does tech and life sciences and uh, mostly at the um, kind of startup to mid-market level. And, I, you know, the past year, I have much more sort of time Available hours um, spent with founders, with uh, CEOs, with you know chief technology people or engineers, than with uh, general counsel. Simply because a lot of these companies don't yet have general counsel. Um, so, and I, I just love that type of work because you know it is it's real privacy by design. It's not. A compliance department doing accountability. It's uh, actually thinking of how to structure a product so you know it can fly and won't be sort of shot down in the next funding round or M and A uh, because it's it's viable and the market you know will take it. I'm smiling because it sounds like my job. <laughs> it's pretty similar. <laughs> Pedro, you got any last last thoughts or topics? We got to wrap soon, but uh, no. I got, you, I, look, I, I I just want to acknowledge like um, we're in the presence of a privacy giant, and we're really lucky to have him here with us. Um, I have watched you, Omer, since the beginning of my career as a person I wanted to emulate, and I'm really grateful you came and spent this time with us, man. 
Oh, Same. thanks a lot, Pedro and Andy. Like it's, uh, uh, I'm a devout follower of the podcast, and <laughs> I'm honored and humbled to partake. So thank you for inviting me, and this was fun. Yeah, thanks for coming. All three listeners will love this episode. <laughs> <laughs> what three besides us, or yeah, three yeah. including? No, us? there's yeah. three others. There's yeah, yeah, three yeah, others. Yeah, my gra- my yeah. grandma for sure. My mom. <laughs> my mom also. There we go. Now we got four. You see that? We just added a listener. There's a, there's a cat that also listens. There's a cat. <laughs> <laughs>